Hi, I'm Louis, and welcome back to another episode of Chalkboard Ultra. Sam isn't here, though. Last time I checked, he disappeared, and then I get a message from him saying that he's in London calculating pi with Matt Parker. Last time I checked, pi was never-ending, so he might be there a while. So, thank the Lord, I'm with other people who can talk about mathematics. Why don't you introduce yourselves, everyone? I'm Woody, I'm Louis' friend. I'm a second-year PPE student with an interest in philosophy, and I'm here today to talk about maths and computers. Yeah, hello, I am Oliver. I'm a third-year maths student. I know both Sam and Louis. I'm making up a third of the force that was required to bring in to replace Sam. Uh, yeah, we'll be talking about some interesting things today, all related to our degrees, so across a few fields, maths, philosophy, PPE, things like that. And I'm Jacob. I know Louis and Sam. I live with Sam. I'm also a third-year maths student. I enjoy probability. I'm hoping to talk about game theory today. That sounds superb. I hope the podcast will go well, mainly because I know that this is Valentine's Day and I've dragged you all away from your girlfriend, so please forgive me on that. Let's get on with the episode. This week's episode, we'll be talking about game theory and the applications of that, mainly in relation to chess. We have a chess board set up here. I just want to say that every Purple Radio event doesn't start off with a game just in the middle of the studio. So this is a special thing for today, mainly because Woody here suggested the idea of discussing computer chess. So what's that all about, Woody? So computer chess is a field 70, 80 years old. Ever since computers were basically invented, the story starts, as it often does, with Alan Turing, who was one of the first people to ever conceive of a computer that could play chess. And he designed this machine called the Turochamp. While it was never built during his lifetime, when it was, the people who created the machine were able to beat it. Games would take hours because the computer had to compute for 30 minutes for each move. It was, it was run on punch cards each input it, inputting a move. However, it took another 40 years for computers to be able to compete with the best players in the world. And this was quite a momentous achievement in chess computing. In 1997, Deep Blue, a team run by IBM, were finally able to defeat Garry Kasparov, who at the time was number one in the world and is still the second greatest player ever. Right, so when you're looking at building something like a chess computer, because just thinking about it off the top of my head, there's so much information to work with, mm-hmm. right? So is it a general idea and rule set and then it suggests something, or is it an idea of like memorize all the possible board states and all the like moves that you could make and then go from there? How does it, how does it work? Mm. Well, it's a bit of both. There's the, there are these heuristics used to cut down on moves because obviously once you start looking at this tree of moves, it becomes infinitely massive immediately. So... Some of the best computers in the world use a process called alpha beta pruning, which I'm sure you three can describe much better than I can. But essentially, it's to cut down on losses. If if it recognizes immediately that the position appears to be losing or detrimental, it will stop looking at that branch. So you've cut out a lot of the tree that you don't need to look at, making the process a lot more efficient. Okay, so that's good. So then once you've got that, do you have a way of selecting a move that's good or something like that? 
Yeah, so a similar process occurs where the computer will look at the material position, for example, if they recognize that a move will mean you lose your queen in four turns, it will most likely avoid that move and evaluate the position based on that. It will also be looking at, you know, mating patterns. If it recognizes that this position leads to a mate in three for my opponent, it's going to avoid that. Yeah, I know that you want pieces in the middle, right? Because then they have more control over the board, putting pressure on more spaces. So like you're always better off moving your knight towards the middle rather than towards the edge. So I guess that cuts off like so many moves. Well, it's just, I suppose you're stacking up a bunch of probability, right? So you, you look at all the positions and say, right, I want weight in the middle of the board. Mm -hmm. And then you say, right, okay, you know, I'll value this to a certain degree and then overlap that with all your other criteria and then somehow it spits out a decent move. Yeah. I know that it assumes that like the opponent is also a perfect actor, right? So it'll assume that the uh, the opponent is just as good at chess than the computer is when it's evaluating whether it's a winning or losing position, even if it's playing against someone who's not perfect. Mm, that is true. Yeah, it's, it's always going to do good moves. It's never going to play what we call hope chess, which is where, you know, you you make a, what appears to be like a stunning sacrifice, but in actuality, there's a perfectly good counter and you're just losing. The computer will play computer moves basically mm -hmm. mm. so i don't know if we'll end up talking about it later but it's a similar thing that comes up within the game theory side of things a lot of it is to do with what you assume your opponent's going to do mm -hmm. right and so yeah. in, in your simple games that you've got running of course chess is not a simple game but you have to assume your opponent's going to behave perfectly mm. or you have to assume nothing of your opponent um there was a the canonical example for and i suppose the other way of saying that, the most typical example for game theory is the prisoner's dilemma. I'm sure everyone's aware of that. Mm -hmm. um, if not, I'll talk about it later. <laughs> but uh, in that scenario, if you assume too much about your opponent, if you if you try and take in too much information, that generally tends to be a losing strategy. And that's something you can prove, interestingly. Taking on too much information makes you worse at the game. I don't know if that overlaps or how much that plays into chess computing. But Some of the best players in the world find it harder to play players that are slightly below their level rather than players that are on their level. If you play a dubious move very confidently, you know, your opponent might think, oh, they've put a lot of thought into this move. It's a, it's a, it's a brilliancy. And they, you know, the psychology comes into it. Whereas with computer chess, they, they know the soundest moves, which kind of leads to the next point of with perfect play, who wins a game of chess? If both, if both players are playing with 100% accuracy, what happens? Well, isn't there something that you get where in you train up, you know, these massive machine learning networks, you train up these really strong computers, and sometimes they'll just come to the conclusion of surrendering every time and asking for a draw, because then at least you don't lose, right? So mm. is that a sort of problem you have to overcome? I'm not familiar in chess, but there was a there was a famous example where somebody built a Tetris robot and instead of losing the game, the machine just paused it and just yeah, refused yeah, to play it that. again. <laughs> Yeah. That sounds like a good idea, mainly because stalemate, no one wins, no one loses. Yeah. Would you say that's just the default way of chess then? Well, that's the, that's the question of solving chess. If we were able to, if we had the computing power to do it, would we find that with perfect play comes a draw? Or would we find that the inherent first move advantage that white has leads to a win every time for white? Yeah. Well, well, yeah, with the stage we're at with computer chess, does it play perfectly yet or does it make some like opportunities to win like is it possible to be the best computer at chess at least theoretically humans can't but mm. there are there are big competitions where computers play each other and the best 
the best computer, which in my opinion is AlphaZero, which is a computer that uses AI to basically train itself, defeated Stockfish, which is one of the most widely used computers, 28 times with zero losses. Perfect play, according to Stockfish, is not perfect play according to another computer. Mm. So the way we define perfect play is based on the computers we are using. Yeah, because if the computer can't see why it's not perfect play, it wouldn't have even played it in the first place. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Well, I think, hasn't there been a trend recently? The uh, the quality and style of chess that's been played has, has changed and increased. Um, it's become a lot more abstract because of AlphaZero. I think um, that these sort of more moves that would have been seen as outlandish in the past are becoming more commonplace and there's been uh, there was a massive uptake over lockdown of chess i think overall the quality has massively increased recently right absolutely yeah so there was a there was a tendency maybe in the 2000s 2010s for players to play like a computer which basically meant playing quite slowly methodically almost boring whereas the development of alpha zero you know it was playing these bold daring sacrifices and pinning stockfish into these terrible positions, just absolutely crushing it. It's almost kind of going back to this old style of playing chess. It's called the Romantic School. Players like Paul Morphy and Tal, who were playing like AlphaZero, they were playing these amazing games filled with brilliancies and like daring sacrifices. Just the most beautiful chess you can imagine. And I think we're kind of seeing a move back towards that because of developments like AlphaZero. Yeah, well, I suppose it would be hard as a human to convince yourself that that's the best way of doing it. You look at these sort of clean-cut, consistent strategies and for a lot of human development and a lot of what we inherit as our strategy for things is trying to be as logical, trying to explain our processes as possible. You see a really interesting thing crop up in evolution. And so what you get from AlphaZero, it's, it's trained in an evolutionary manner, right? They have a, a model and then they change it and tweak it in some ways, and they you know cross-reference those against each other, see what performs well, keep that. That's common in machine learning, neural networks, training like that. But you get a similar thing in evolution, not just from your physical build, so you know, birds with a longer beak or something like that, but there was a really interesting bit of work done on evolutionary game theory where strategies inherited and so maybe you can argue it's to do with the structure of the brain, but the ways that animals behave and the ways that they interact with each other is also inherited. What's the example? It's sharks are swimming about the ocean, right? And they get, or sharks and whales and things like that, and they get little parasites attaching to them. And so there's these small fish that will come up to them and will happily kind of clean off the bigger fish and so the bigger fish will allow them to do it and not eat them because a shark right. could eat it if it wanted to for the benefit of them cleaning them up. Ah, see, like that's interesting. So that's like he will avoid his like instincts to eat those fish because he knows they're helping him. That's mad. Yeah. That is interesting though, like I guess cooperation. But yeah. there are some ones that aren't even from a psychological point of view. I mean, there's certain insects, uh, what is it, breeds of caterpillars and butterflies that only live off of nettles or only live off a certain plant and you know the nutrition they require to grow and live is all dependent on that and so i suppose that is a sort of one-way situation but by having that if that plant dies off then as does that insect right and so they fall into this natural balance of how many of one and the other there is yeah interesting
it's funny you get these things crop up. There's a nice tie between your PDEs and your things that you're talking about. You've got these, for the listener at home, a PDE, some sort of partial differential equation, and you tend, you tend to be looking for a solution to this or looking for some sort of minimum. Minimums, when we talk about those, if you roll a ball down a hill, it tends to end up at the bottom sort of thing. Uh, these are the solutions we're looking at. Then this is where you get these equilibrium equilibriums in nature, right? There's always going to be a balance between the number of rabbits and the number of foxes going around. Yeah. And that ties into your PDEs, your partial differential equations, and your game theory. Because the strategies that they're working with depend on the numbers, and the numbers then form this overarching equation. So it's it's a nice little link there, back to the same thing. That's fascinating. So in regard to chess, can we actually solve the game and come up with, okay, this strategy will always give us a win or a loss or a draw, as we've discussed, is probably the most, uh, most easy thing to do? Well, I think we can. I think it's just a problem of... Is it possible with the computers that we have? So, for example, there was a 16-year-long project to see if they could solve drafts or checkers, and they could. However, the number of games of drafts that are possible is the approximately the square root of the number of games of chess. So, you know, if it took 16 years to solve drafts, it's going to take a little while for us to progress to be able to solve chess. And I know you're interested in quantum computing, and I was wondering if the developments in that could potentially be paving the way for yeah like, through in this area quantum computing is interesting because it it really speeds up a certain set of problems so uh, some things that you know we're going to see change near in the future say to do with cryptography or more you know rapid ways of performing existing operations so say with quantum computers there's very quick ways to times numbers together and so what we'll see is probably the continuing of our sort of exponential growth of technology. Things are twice as fast today as they were a year ago. And then a year ago, they were twice as fast again. And so what we see is, you know, this increasing, increasing, increasing. So I don't think I'd be surprised if within a few years, chess was much more solved. You know, if you can be more solved than you are now, this is where we get to, right? You know, with the advent of machine learning, AI, this is, you know, in all of our phones now, it's, it's becoming implemented. I think we're en route to solving a lot more of these classical problems that we're used to. Yeah, I mean, just compare chess to like how it was when Bobby Fischer was around. He did not have access to all the computers and just insane amount of resources we have today. Who knows what it will be in the same amount of time in the future. There's something called the Shannon number, which gives the game complexity of chess, and it's 10 to the power of 120 or so. Now, that's huge, but that's notably a lower bound but at least gives us a bit of perspective. So I think Othello is like 10 to the 58. Uh, Tic-tac-toe, uh, probably a easy to solve one, is 10 to the 5. So I'd say it's definitely possible. Checkers was sold 2007, so it's definitely on the horizon, I'd say. But, okay, let's say we solve it. We have solved chess. What do we do now? Well, this is where you come from, right? Because chess inherently is a zero-sum game. So in chess... You win or you lose, but there's not particularly anything coming out of it. It's like poker, right? You play poker with your friends around the table. You all walk in with money, and then somebody walks away with some combination of that, right? It doesn't make any money or lose any money halfway through. So generally, these problems, you study them, and then it's sort of a case of so what, right? Because then one person can win more, but then the other person just adopts the same strategy. So 
when we've built the ideal chess computer, then everyone can just have a copy of it. And then I suppose nobody plays anymore, right? Well, that's the thing. I think solving the game doesn't reduce its value. It doesn't reduce how people enjoy it. These are, these are quite abstract problems, in my opinion. I don't think anybody stopped playing checkers all of a sudden when they solved it, just because, you know, what's the point anymore? It will always be a draw, so what's the point of playing? I don't think anybody thinks like that. But at the top level of chess, you have seen the game become more drawerish. A lot of games, the players will play a few moves just as a formality and then offer each other a draw. So I think there are ways kind of around this this issue. So there's been the introduction of Chess 960 or Fisher Random Chess, in which the, the back row of pieces are arranged at random according to a generation before the game. And I think that takes away some of the predictability, some of the drawishness. And a lot of the top chess players are kind of taking this up as well, as mm -hmm. well as the classical game. How much of a difference does that make then? Can you just start off with a horrific combination or is it mostly fair? I mean, do you get the same on the back as each other? Yeah, it's, uh, it's mirrored. Okay. I think one of the key differences is that chess doesn't really have any chance involved. The only exception I can think of is whether you start first, you probably might flip a coin. But the fact that there is no chance, perfect information, with Fisher Random Chess, it spices the game up by offering a different style of play. And whether it be a bad home rank or a, a good home rank, it doesn't really matter because both sides have bad and good home ranks. Definitely. It takes away from some of the, the theory death of chess, I think as Fisher called it, where you, know, you memorize opening books instead of actually playing the game. And I think that's kind of why he developed this, this style of playing chess. So do chess computers that we've got now, say AlphaZero, if, if you stuck that on a game of Fisher 960, would it work? Or it, is the way that it analyzes just not the same? It would, yeah, if you, if you gave AlphaZero a starting setup for a game of chess, it could figure out, you know, the best moves for that. It, it doesn't really matter what arrangement the pieces are in for, for it. If you, if you allowed it to train itself. Yeah, that's interesting because I suppose all of the training data would have probably been from traditional games, right? So all of the positions would have only made sense and the moves would have made sense for your classical setup. And then you give it something new and, you know, it's not, it, it's not been trained on and it can perform something, you know, a strong move. Yeah, I suppose if you're worried about the time it would need to train itself, that's not so much an issue. After only nine hours of training, the Alpha Zero was able to defeat Stockfish 8, which was the most modern at the time, in a pretty crushing, crushing game. So, you know, it wouldn't take very long for it to kind of figure out Fish at random. Have you ever heard of Kriegspiel? Go on. No. It's a version of chess where the players can only see their own pieces and need an umpire to check what move is legal or not. It's sort of like if Battleship was mixed with chess, could a computer do that with completely no... In well, the umpire would help, but with very little information. Surely not, because there's like an, a degree of randomness to it. You, there's information you don't have, and you could guess wrong, right? So I don't think that could be solved, theoretically, but maybe I'm wrong. It does fall under a different categorization within game theory, if you want to talk about that. Having all of the information on a problem available really changes the way that you can look at it. Chess is lovely to study because you can see everything and you can usually tell what moves have been made, or at least, you know, if you're playing the game, you know what moves have been made. Um, this falls under the same sort of category as rock, paper, scissors, tic-tac-toe, plenty of other things where you've got all the information. But then 
there's a whole different category of games and this falls under, if there's any math students, I think falls under Markov chains where you are given no previous information, right? So you're just playing a one-off game over and over and over. So there's an interesting nuanced difference when you can look at retaliation and you can look at revenge. Uh, one of the typical examples that's given is from The Prisoner's Dilemma. I'll talk actually a bit about this first. I drove into the studio today. I was slightly miserable about the size of the car park out the front. And I was thinking about cars as I was driving through and getting my shoes proper muddy. I was always walking right from the other end of the car park. And one of my real pet peeves about cars is, is headlights. I don't know if anyone... Do, do either of you guys drive all three? I mean, yeah, I drove you back you, from Mass. You did, you did drive me back from Mass. Car? I can drive. You can drive. You Not can't drive. Probably. I've got a deep-rooted hatred for Audis and BMWs, specifically the new ones with the LED headlights. Oh, I hate LED headlights. LED headlights. Bane of my existence. No need. No. No need, right. I don't want to get blinded. <laughs> exactly. Well, you don't want to get blinded. So this is... I always get this now. It's one of those sort of brain viruses that you can't get rid of. I've got, I've got an LED headlight brain virus. When you're driving at night, you have to flick your headlights off when there's somebody coming the other way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, okay. This, being, is, this yeah. is a normal thing. But sometimes people don't. No, they don't. Right, no. okay. And uh, another bane of my existence is this. This is a real fun, quotation marks, run of the prisoner's dilemma. I'm driving along the road at night. Somebody's coming the other way to me and he leaves his main beams on. He doesn't lose anything from that. But I can't see out. So what am I going to do? Am I going to flip my headlights on and blind him too? Probably not. But this is this is what the prisoner's dilemma is. So if you both leave them off, you're both fine. You can both see a bit. Somebody turns them on, they can see great, and you, you can't. And if you to both turn on, you're done for. So that's what we're looking at with this. And this is one of these examples of a, of a game where you're competing against each other. You know, one person wins, one person loses. And you will only drive past that person once. So this is a one-off game. What I'm given this segue for is we think about chess once, right? But if you were to drive past the same fella five, six, 50 times, you're going to start having a pattern going and you're going to start thinking about the way that he's acting or the way that she's acting, leaving the headlights on. And so this is when you get these repeated games versus these single games. Now, if you, the last time I drove past you, left your headlights on, I'm probably going to act differently, or at least I'm going to expect it, right? Mm. And I suppose you could apply the same thing for working out whether an opponent is aggressive or passive in chess and things like that. But playing repeated games introduces this whole new interesting idea of retaliation carrying over. And there's a classical interesting um, strategy, which is tit for tat. You see this in real life, eye for an eye, tit for tat, where rapid retaliation and then forgetting is a really really successful strategy yeah yeah i guess it's got sort of like you know you could maybe decide if they come with their main beam on you flick your main beam on it's sort of an incentive for them to actually turn it off and yeah and also to to get them to think about it and then to not do it the next time yeah you know you, you can both win if if neither of you are yeah causing so like, problems individually it's almost always better to have um your main beam on if you know they won't have the theirs on so you know it's kind of like the prisoner's dilemma where if you're collaborating from the perspective of looking at it you know as collaborative utility it's always better for you both to not give your partner up but obviously individually 
there is no reason not to give them up. You're always personally doing better, right? So that's sort of what comes into it. Yeah, exactly. But the only thing being that if you're remembering from time to time, then sticking your main beams on is probably going to cause them to do something that you don't like. Yeah. And so then you get the whole problem of how much you value each thing. And then this is where we get into the mathematical side of things. You you start assigning values to these things and say, you know, I'll be this unhappy if I lose this situation. I'll be this happy if I win this situation. So this is when you can start working with probability and doing these things like this. And this is when the whole field of mathematics really kicks in here. Mm-hmm. We talk about something similar in philosophy. We talk about whether we sequence actions or not. So, for example, in your in your game, do we know that we're driving past the same person 50 times? Should our decisions change based on that? They, I'm sure they do in real life, but should they? Should we allow the fact that an action is repeated to influence our, our action? If it's, if it's the right thing to do, surely it's the right thing to do 50 times in a row. Well, making bad decisions is part of playing games, right? Even the best players of any sort of game don't do everything optimally the whole time. Working back in 1950, odd, uh, the concept of a Nash equilibrium, which I won't explain fully, but it's basically like in rock, paper, scissors, where effectively each time nobody can make that good of a move because you kind of know what's happening and there's not much that you can predict with rock, paper, scissors, is when you have a stable game, right? The way that's developed into modern theory is called a trembling hand equilibrium where even if you're the best player in the world, maybe you shake and you stick your chest piece on the wrong square from time to time. And that, as it turns out, is also an equilibrium, right? It's a stable state of a game where if everybody occasionally makes a slightly worse or slightly better play by accident, that can still be consistent and fair. And so it's all part of the same system. And so maybe that plays into your idea of like, you know, do you know if it's the same people? Are you going to impact them in different ways? Are you going to accidentally make a mistake? I think, well, no, from a theory point of view, that is consistent and is okay. Interesting. Do you think there's there's major implications in terms of in terms of policy, in terms of the highest level government action? Notorious example is, you know, weapons of mass destruction. Mm-hmm. How do you think, you know, p- imperfect, perfect information applies applies there? Well, it's difficult, right? Because how many times have we used such, such things like that? I mean, there's not there's been very few uses of extreme weapons of mass destruction in human history the ones that have been have been terrible but we don't then have this same backdrop of okay this happened this time this happened this time here's how to retaliate here's how to not so it's interesting when you get to these problems that don't have a playbook and i mean ignoring all of the moral implications this is when you would really struggle and this is when you struggle for training models so training a chess computer is fine Training a Go computer is fine because there's been millions of games played. We've got all the information. And even if it's reductive in the idea that you're making something out of the information you've got, you can still sort of patch it all together and it will be good. Quotation marks. Right? But then, say you've got a game no one's played before, how do you how do you teach that? How do you train someone to be good at that? Mutually oh, assured destruction. I guess it's the idea that like... <laughs> Straight in. Yeah. Mutually yeah, assured with, destruction. Yeah. So like, um, I guess if we were to make like a table of it, there's only one valid option in in this scenario. And that's that no one, no one fires the nuke, right? Because if any one person fires a nuke, there's going to be a retaliation. And basically we could consider that like negative infinity utility. So no matter how bad the situation is, that's just not going to happen. Do you know what I mean? And that's kind of when I think retaliation comes into that, right? 
because you need to have the option of, well, if they fire the nuke, we're going to do the same. And then that's sort of how, how you incentivize them to not do that and how you keep it in the no one fires the nuke part of the table, I guess. I suppose, again, it falls under a different category of problem, right? Because if you don't know it's happened, of course, you can't really do anything about it. Um, <clears throat> but then being able to see what your opponent's doing, say if it's a sort of game where you take turns, one person goes and then the other, that completely changes the way that you think about these sort yeah, of things, true, right? It really true. changes the way that you can apply your theory. Because if you can't predict, say, again, I keep talking about it, but again, if it's rock, paper, scissors, you go at the same time for a good reason. If you see what one person does, the game's ruined, right? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I guess with rock, paper, scissors, it's one of those games where um, you can't really put that much strategy into it. I think one thing that came up in decision theory is you look at problems in game three quite pessimistically often. You assume that the other person has, like, you know, they're a perfect logical machine and they can 100% predict what you're going to do, right? And we sort of look how you can basically make sure that their input doesn't come into it whatsoever. So no matter what they choose to do, your percentage or your chance of success is always the same. So if I just have a randomly generated input for my rock, paper, scissors, and each chance has a third, it doesn't matter what my opponent's strategy is. My chance of winning is always going to be a third, and there's nothing they can do about that. And you can sort of extend that to other, I guess, games in utility and just completely negate the other person's chance to outsmart you or, you know, outfight you logically, I guess. I suppose that works for games like Rock, Paper, Scissors. You just, you play randomly. You know, you assign each one a third yeah. in your mind. But where does like dominant and dominated strategies come in? So mm. I suppose in the game of Rock, Paper, Scissors, if you played Rock every single time, that yeah. would eventually become a dominated strategy. Yeah. So yeah, you need, yeah, you need a degree of, you need to like vary what you do. You need some degree of randomness at least. Otherwise you become completely uh, predictable. And Rock, Paper, Scissors is like a very clear example, right? If you have any sort of pattern, you need to have it like random, basically. And there's other ones. So rock, paper, scissors is like each option would have the an, e an even likelihood of success. But let's say you have another game where like one option ha is more likely to succeed. You would adjust the probabilities accordingly. But the important part is you don't have a clear pattern. Otherwise, you know, you're going to quickly get predictable. And that's what you don't want to do if you're both going at the same time. One of the only advantages you have is, you know, the element of surprise, I guess. Mm. But then, say you look at a retaliatory strategy. Mm -hmm. um, say I were to look at what you did last time and then choose the thing that were to beat that. Yeah. So anytime you play something twice in a row, I win. Yeah. How does that stack up? Occasionally I'll win by accident because you'll do the same thing twice, but I'm yeah. doing something predictable, right? So I've got mm -hmm. no randomness in my strategy, but I am changing. Yeah. So how does that work? I mean, you do kind of have randomness. It's just not your own randomness, right? Like it's based on... A what I randomly choose, but it's still random. And of course, by me doing it randomly, I it, it's pessimistic. So I'm saving myself from the worst outcome, but obviously my best outcome will be noticing your pattern. So then if I go rock, I'm going to assume that you go paper next and choose scissors. But in my pessimistic you know, outlook on the game, I'm not looking to win. I'm just looking to not get outsmarted, right? Mm. Or I'm not looking to outsmart you. I just don't want my opponent to outsmart me. And that's why you're looking at it quite pessimistically. And of course, if you were to look at it more optimistically, I could do that. But then that puts me at the risk of being outsmarted because then you could predict me trying to pick you and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Well, this, uh, p computers are very bad at picking random numbers, famously. Mm -hmm. the, the, you know, there's nothing within software that actually can choose a random number. You can pick a bunch of random quotation marks, things, and pull them together, like the temperature of your room and 
you know, add five or something. Yeah. But this is, I suppose, something that you maybe run across when you're trying to work out these probabilities and play these games where you can, you know, nothing is truly random. But I guess if we're going to look at it like in the real world, everything's dependent on something else, right? That's why if you play like a game or something, some people will like manipulate the RNG because the RNG isn't really RNG. It's all based on stuff that's already happened and has been done in the game. And that's like a very simplified version of real life, I think. You can try to pick something random, but it's always going to be something, everything has a cause, right? It's always the effect of something. No, yeah. I see where you're coming from though. If your you know, sole purpose was to beat a computer program at chess, one of the things you could play into your advantage would be looking, you know, if you can tell the sequence of random numbers it's going to choose to weight some of its arguments and to make some of its decisions, then you've got an advantage. Are we inviting problems by using computers to play these games? Not only in that they are predictable in their randomness, but also it, it dehumanizes it, right? Uh, we're, we're taking these games, we're analyzing deeply, and then we're, we're taking an optimal solution. And then we've seen that the, the modern day chess has taken the form of this computer chess and, and people are convinced by it. Right? People believe that it's the best way of playing because they get beaten by it. And it has actively influenced play and that play will actively influence the thing. It, it's regressive in the way that it's behaving. Right? Mm. So is it is it a good thing for us to be doing, do you think? Maybe it's a mental exercise, but I think it does have those negative effects in the real world. I don't know if any of you play chess online, but there's no worse mm. feeling than losing a game, feeling terrible, and then going to review it, and it turns out, you know, your opponent played with 100% accuracy with some computer cheat. Yeah. There is an element of that that it's, it is ruining the game. This is why I don't play chess. <laughs> <laughs> we could change it. There's actually been a game ongoing the whole time, but nobody's made any moves for a while. We're so deeply invested in the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yes. Yeah. Shall we see what moves we can make? It's like a new strange form of asmr we'll just have like the noise of the pieces yeah. moving and then you the dear listener can guess who won knight to e3 <laughs> we can go oh yeah that's pretty well, that's there, there were some very quick moves i had a huge hit on why they uh why they stick mcdonald's and kfc next to each other i know is, that you right? get you've got to get to that, that. Yeah, so Do, like... Talk me through why that happens. So obviously I've not researched it as recently as you have, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but they have it right next to each other because, you know, you basically cover everyone who's at the other side of the town, right? So if one side of the town is closer to the uh, the KFC, they'll go there. And if you put McDonald's right next to it, everyone that's at the other side will go to the McDonald's. If you put it any further away, you know, you're losing a, a, a larger market, I guess, that's, that would then be close to the KFC or something like that. So they're both trying to maximise the amount of people they can... I believe well, it's it's twofold I think right okay so you you set up your lemonade stand and I don't want you taking any of my business so if I set up next door I'll probably take half of your business mm -hmm. and so you're going to assume that people are going to set up shops in in good places right where there's lots of business and so you would have already well we would have both wanted to set up shop in the same place and so overall this this sort of mutually assured destruction where if we both just take half of the business in a good area, that's okay. Mm -hmm. We both end up with half of the market share and then we're fine. So that's why you tend to see the clustering of these shops, right? Because everyone wants a good place for a shop and nobody wants to let the other competitor take all of that good business. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fun, there is deep cut theory behind it, but it's one of those sort of lighter examples to introduce. <laughs>
One of the things in game theory is we always assume that the person we're working with is a rational actor and we, we're going to assume that they work rationally. And at first that might sound a bit reductive because it's like people act irrationally all the time, you know, but I don't necessarily think that that's, that that's quite true. I think when we look at rationality, we'll look at our own subjective view of the world. And that's where utility comes into it, right? Because utility is an entirely subjective thing. Nothing really has an absolute objective value. We might see it as that, but like even something as universal and seemingly agreed upon is like a thousand pounds. Well, that's got a clear, the value is written down on it quite clear. But I think we would all agree that a thousand pounds to a billionaire is not nearly worth what it would be to someone living in poverty. And it's easy for maybe a billionaire to see all the things that a poor person would do to get a thousand pounds. I think that person's acting irrationally. You know, they've they've got they they're just not they're acting with no logic whatsoever. When in reality, they're acting perfectly logic according to their own utility. That's gone in interestingly with machine learning and linear regression, everyone's favourite. That and third year, I suppose, machine learning module is all kind of about assigning weights to things, and that is a, in a way. You can look at rationality through that, right? What's, what is your rationale to, to work with the word? How much do you afford to each aspect of something? Say you've got a, a fruit basket and you've got two apples and an orange and you, you value oranges twice as much as apples then you've got the same value of each in there, mm-hmm. right? And so when you've got these chess computers which are effectively doing massive matrix multiplication uh, over and over and over really quickly. And that's where they're quite hard to train and quite computationally dense. They are assigning weights and importances to hundreds and thousands of different characteristics. And then by taking this combination of all of those, that's its rationale. Mm-hmm. It spits out an answer. And that's, that's great. And the way of you training these models is, is by tweaking these values and allowing these values to tweak themselves, actually. And you look for this sort of stable equilibrium where it all balances out and makes good moves on average. And there's plenty of reading that can be done on, say, something called backpropagation or the way that you regress these models. But the it's, it's really good that you brought up rationale as, a, as an idea and incentive and the ways that you train things or the ways that you look that things tend towards is really interesting. If we wanted to apply all of the theory that we've been talking about to, to people, it'd, it'd be near on impossible, right? Mm. Most examples of, of game theory that people study are, are quite simple, yeah. right? Or they're very closed examples, but th- this is where you get to the real world and you, you get to what we're looking at doing today, which is implementing AI and tech into our everyday lives. And you, you wonder, is it, is it good enough? Can it take in enough information for us to be trusting it? I was on my I was on my banking app, and <laughs> and there's an AI assistant on it. Yeah, and I, I was I was slightly mortified to be totally honest, because I mean, as much as you know, I don't think anyone particularly enjoys doing any customer service or speaking to anyone like that. Not quite. I I don't want. I don't want an AI assistant dealing with my finances. I don't. Tr- I don't think it can take in the information. I appreciate your bank account's not got a huge amount of details attached to it. Yeah. But you can train these things to do well in games, and you can train them to do well in closed situations. But are we are we going too far with the modern day of where we're trying to apply everything? Yeah. Can it take it in? 
I mean, not everything has an objective solution, right? Like, can an AI completely know you what your priorities are when it comes to, you know, your bank account? Not really, right? Well, I think within the workforce, we're probably seeing a massive uptake of AI. Well, I think there was a Durham University poll. I'm, I'm sure somebody can pull this up somewhere that gave a percentage of essays that were written by ChatGPT um, handed in, I think, something around 5%, yeah. which is... You know, 5% that were just directly copy and pasted and maybe 30% that had used it to help, yeah. which is, you know, it's a tool that people use. Mm -hmm. But in due time, I think a lot of, say, government work or administration work at a high level will probably be done by a pre-trained program. Yeah. And so where do we get with that? Do we claim that that's a, an ethical issue? Do we, do we claim that? Yeah. I mean, there's the idea that it could be plagiarism because the AI doesn't really know what it's doing. It's taking information uh, from it's, like, it's all regression. Yeah. Right. And it's using other people's work. Like you'll see with art, I'll, I'll deviate a bit. Like with art, you can kind of see some non existent signatures because it, that's what people do on their art. And it just copies and does like a little squiggle based on all the signatures. Yeah. So anytime you see like an AI text or an AI bit of art or anything, it's not actually creating anything really. It's, it's taking stuff it's seen and kind of jumbling it up into one. And that's why if you like ask AI to like make a, a picture of a burger and then it's got pickles on it, you say, take off the pickles. It doesn't know how to do it. It doesn't know what pickles are. It's just copying, pasting, or, you know, copying millions of results and pasting it. It doesn't know what any of it really is. It just thinks this is what happens when I look for a burger. I'm going to show that. But it has no idea how to remove pickles off a burger. This is the thing. I don't. We're not there yet, and I don't think we will be for quite some time at the level where any generative program can do that, where it can take that single step of logical reasoning. Mm -hmm. And so then you apply this to something like the chess we were talking about, and you say, well, okay, we've got extremely strong AI programs, but is it taking a single logical step here? So is it able to remove the pickles from the burger in that, sure, it can look at every chess game ever, and take an average and make some assumptions and produce a very good move, right? And if you gave a human years and years and years and years, they could do the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. But whether that is hitting a theoretical limit, and we just can't see it yet because we're not that good at chess, yeah, I, I, would, I would argue that that's the case, right? So we've got something where in some genres, like image generation, we can clearly see that AI machines are fallible and we can see why they're fallible because we're very good at image generation mm -hmm. whereas with chess we can't quite understand the the step it's not taking yet maybe that's because it's a limited game and it's very closed but i do think there's a at least for now quite a hard cap on what can be done whether that's by a chess program or the new souped up version of siri that i'm sure they'll ship within a year I should probably say, as a follow-on from our LaMath podcast, that LaMath has now ended. Jacob and Ollie were part of LaMath, just like Tom Johnson was, and Sam. So we have, we've got all of Uptown Funk on Chorbord Ultra, but in various different ways. How was LaMath? Um, I really enjoyed it, for the most part. I think when it first started, I was like, oh god. But then when we really got into it, because like, we were doing so well, we were in the lead for a good section, I think. Towards the end, we sort of faded away a bit i was absolutely shattered but like the hope of victory just kept me awake and i was really into it and it was a really good experience i really enjoyed it yeah sure it's 24 hours i'll never get back but i did deeply enjoy it um the sleep cycle was ruined oh i'm uh, still recovering i'm still recovering <laughs> 
Yeah, and I don't think I'll be touching coffee anytime soon. But no, it was really good. Of course, mm. always lovely to do something for a charitable cause. Oh, absolutely. And as ever, a very impressive question paper. If anybody's listening that didn't take part and is interested in maths on the whole and for a bit of extra, there's nothing I can recommend more. Some fantastic things to look into. One of the bonus problems was Conway's angel and devil problem. There were some really, really fun integrals. And I'm sure if you go poking around, you can find the question paper somewhere. Remind you how good for you it is, that sort of thing. You know, putting in a shift, doing yeah. something as a bit of... And it's all for a good cause as well. So, you, you know, it's, it's not really like you can't view it as a waste of time if it's all, you know... No, exactly. And I've, I've remembered how to do an integral. Yeah. Yeah, there's good. so much of what is in there even the GCSE stuff I'm like ah oh, I've forgotten not the GCSE but the A level stuff I've let's forgotten. hope you've not forgotten your GCSEs no no yeah. I've not forgotten my GCSEs but like when it was like volume of rotation oh, yeah. I, 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 I fully forgot that <laughs> will you be taking part next year? Can oh absolutely 100 million percent if it's on I really hope it's on Louis, it was a shame to see you, but one, of course it was lovely to see you but it was a shame to see you behind the marking desk I was, I was hoping for a a competitive performance. No, yeah. no, 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 no. Um, I was asked by Sam Shepard to write some statistics questions, and whilst non-calculated statistics is very strange to do, mm -hmm. I think I managed to pull through, and uh, it was fun marking my own questions. <laughs> How do people do? Um, He's pulling up the stats. You got the stats. Oh, you got the stats on the stats. Stats, stats. Stats, stats, stats. I don't think please. we did any stats. I think we, we focused, didn't do any we focused stats, on the uh, the easier stuff. I mean, I, I was terrible at your stats. Your stats question was, your stats section was tricky, not to be mean. It was tricky. People uh, attempted it and people did well. Uh, I did remember getting a few complaints, mainly from Morgan, maths and stats <laughs> students, about a certain question, but I think it's fine. I just left the solutions at home. I just completely forgot. I was like, oh, right, remember, I'm going. Do you remember all the solutions to it? No, though? no, no. I had like the fully worked out but I just forgot to bring them. So you remembered the answers, just yeah, not... Yeah, I mean, the answers, not, were, the answers were there. Yeah. You just don't remember how, how you got them. Yeah, magic. No, I think it was, yeah. The, the, it was a lot harder than last year, I found, at least. Like, last year, there was a lot of, like, puzzles that I thought um, were worth quite a lot of marks, and they were quite fun to do. And it was fun this year, but I feel like the difficulty ramped up. I think that's reflected in the points people got. I mm. think some... Like, the top team got over 3,000 points last year, if I'm not mistaken. And I think this time it was like 2,200 something, maybe. It was it was very close. Of course, it's a level playing field, so, you know, everyone's, everyone's oh, yeah, doing yeah. the same I thing. I mean, if it's hard, it's harder for everyone, but yeah. yeah. no, I'm very, I'm, I mean, I'm happy with how it did. I'm happy with how it turned out, and I'm happy with, you know, the fact that we raised money for a good cause. So, you know, of course, absolute um, success. I'm sure a link will be available via the yes. MathSock Instagram page yes. if you're interested in finding yeah. about out more. Thank you for having me, Louis. It's been, a, it's been wonderful. It's been very interesting. It's been great to meet you too. Lovely meeting you as always. Yeah. Enjoy DUCFS. Whoa. Thank you very much. Not to give away your happy location Valentine's. for the evening. Happy Valentine's <laughs> yes, Day. Happy Valentine's Day, Day everyone. Sure. Was there any maths that we could have done that would be Valentine's themed? People have discussed the mathematics of love, but it's not something I personally looked into. I recall being taught a way of describing differential equations was through the idea of love and the idea of one person's love for another goes up and down, and you can sort of match that by a differential equation of like, okay, so what at this moment will it be? Um, I have never actually worked out the calculations myself. Have you? No. <laughs> haven't haven't calculated love, although if there ever was a time to, it'd be today. Thank you for having us. I've yeah. been Oliver. I've been Jacob. And I've been Louis. 
Thank you, all of you, Jacob, Ollie, and Woody, for a very informative discussion of rationality, game theory, chess. I think this might be the biggest podcast we've ever done, but I'll have to see what it's like in the editing. Yeah, have fun editing. Oh, yeah. Good luck with that. Honestly, part of the fun of podcasting is doing the edits and and seeing what sort of production you can make. To listeners, don't forget to check out at Chalkboard Ultra on Instagram, and apparently we've got a Twitter page as well. Can't believe that. Woo. X. <laughs> X, formerly Twitter page. We hope you found it enlightening as we did. Keep safe and keep well. I was going to ask, have you actually used Stockfish or AlphaZero? I use Stockfish to, to review games and learn learn a bit of theory, but nothing really too deep. Just show off. What's your ELO before you, before you go? Ah, 1,500. Oh, 1500. That, that is good. Well, it's not, it's not bad. We've got, we've got I, think, I think I've plateaued, though. I, don't, I think unless I put hours every day in, I don't think I could get a lot better. There you go. We shouldn't have been doing the podcast. We should have just been giving a lesson the whole time. Exactly. Yeah. You want private tutoring? Woody, are you a nice person to tutor with? I I tutor GCSE maths. I can oh. do I can do a bit of chess. Does everything. Welcome to a short ball ultra podcast. Pri- primordial soup. Alright. Bottom that's of the what, that's what I'm having for dinner tonight. <laughs> primordial soup. Primordial soup. Primordial soup. Podcasting is hungry work. Bottom of the ocean. What where do they come from? They had those little bubbles of CO two and whatnot filling yep. up. And somehow we've, we're in a, we're in Maiden Castle in a room with no windows. It's a little bit hot and sweaty. That is technically a window. That's technically a window, dear listener. But it, it's all, not. It, all it took was billions of years. All it took was billions of years and a bit of evolution. <laughs> right, okay, you can't tell the listener to go listen. To, you go can't. read Wikipedia. Give us, give us a. Today's podcast is twenty seconds. Just look it up. Yeah, Google it. <laughs> Bye. Purple Radio. Purple Radio Podcasts. Thanks for downloading this Purple Radio Podcast. For more great content and to listen live, head to purpleradio.co.uk.